Father, thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of another Lord's Day, Lord, where we gather together with your people, Lord, those whom are found in Christ, covered by his blood, forgiven of sin, Lord, and eager by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to understand your word. So, Lord, we pray you give us grace and strength again as we speak about this most important topic of baptism. Give us clarity of mind, Lord, as we think through these issues. Give us openness of mind, Lord, and a yieldedness to your Holy Spirit to change our perspective where our perspective needs to be changed. And we pray all of this for your honor and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to continue speaking about baptism, and I've sort of just fallen into alliteration again in describing the titles of each one of these lessons. The first one we simply called the meaning of baptism, where we looked uh, primarily at Colossians chapter 2 and various other passages where I tried to press home the point that baptism in the new covenant replaces circumcision of the old covenant. We drew out sort of the, the parallels between the two and then deduced from that that Uh, There is one covenant of grace with various administrations and that although the sign of the covenant and the new covenant changes from uh, circumcision to baptism, uh, that the substance of the gospel is the same. We looked at Romans chapter 4. We saw that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Abraham was a first generation believer, so he was baptized after he professed faith, after he possessed faith. Uh, But his children were circumcised. They received the sign of the covenant before their belief or their faith was evident. Um, And then we looked at the New Testament and we saw that the sign of the new covenant is baptism and that led us to then ask the question, should baptism be applied to the children of believing parents in the new covenant? If If it was the case that the children of believing parents in the Old Testament were circumcised, then is it feasible? Is it reasonable? Is it a proper deduction to conclude that the children of believers in the new covenant need to be baptized? We then looked at the mode of baptism. We moved from the meaning of baptism to the mode of baptism, and there we still didn't really answer the question of the timing of baptism, that is the when of baptism. Is it applied to a baby who has yet to give evidence of faith or only to a professing adult or even young teenager who clearly professes faith. Um, But under mode, we were talking not about the when of baptism, but the how of baptism. How is one to be baptized? How is baptism to be applied? Is it applied by means of a fusion, that is pouring or sprinkling, or should it be applied only by immersion? And there, our conclusions were a little firmer in the sense that, at least in my estimation, There is ample biblical evidence for the argument for pouring and sprinkling just by virtue of the fact of Acts chapter 1 where Jesus compares the baptism of the Spirit with the water baptism of John. And that's interesting because later in Acts when Pentecost came and the Spirit of God was poured down, 
Um, that's the language that is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Spirit of God was poured down, poured down, poured down. So if Jesus is making a comparison between spirit baptism, which does not involve water, and the Spirit was poured down, then it seems more than reasonable to conclude that pouring or sprinkling is a viable form of baptism and a biblical form of baptism. So personally, I would not hold to the exclusively immersionist position. There are some Christians who hold to that. Most of the Christians that hold to that are are Baptists, um, and they would be sort of the minority view in terms of the rest of Christians throughout church history. And as I said last week, that doesn't seal the argument. We don't believe something simply because the majority of Christians have believed something. Uh, people have believed lots of things that were wrong. However, if the majority of Christians who we revere and respect, people like John Calvin, even people like Martin Luther, the Reformers, even famous preachers of our own era who clearly love the Lord and clearly are biblical on, on virtually everything else and they have no problem with pouring and sprinkling when it comes to baptism, then then that is a cause for us to question maybe our exclusively immersionist position. The exclusively immersionist position is something that uh, is is sort of new um, in Christianity. You, of course, had the Anabaptists who did hold to immersion, exclusive immersionism, and they were viewed as heretics by the Reformers. So I think it's helpful to have history uh, speak to this issue. The Bible is our final authority. Uh, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That, that's what we have emphasized um, in both of the first two sessions on baptism. But history plays a vital role in helping us to have the, the bigger picture of things. And that is why we have spoken about history from time to time and will continue to do that. So the meaning of baptism, the mode of baptism... But this morning, I want to address the subject of membership. That's the third M, membership. And I'm talking about membership within the new covenant. And I'll begin just with a simple question. Who exactly are considered members of the new covenant? Now, I didn't ask you who you thought were members of the new covenant. But what does the Bible describe as those who are members of the new covenant. If you take the application of baptism to infants out of the equation for a moment, forget baptism for a moment, take that out of the equation, whether or not infants of believing parents are to be baptized, what are we left with when we look at the Bible? What are we left with regarding the Bible's data on who the members of the new covenant are. I think there are several lines of evidence that the children of believing parents are included in the promises of God to save those who prove to have faith. So God promises not only to believing parents of the people of God, but to their children who appear to me to be part of the new covenant in some form or fashion, regardless of whether or not you affirm infant baptism. 
The children of believing parents are intrinsically included in the promises of God. It is virtually unavoidable if you're honest with Scripture. And I think there are 10 lines of evidence to prove this simple point, that children of believing parents are included in the promises of God. Number one, first line of evidence. Scripture prophecies always make a special mention of children. Always. Turn with me, for example, to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. We're going to move pretty quickly through these passages. Jeremiah 32. Just pick up with me in verse 38. The Bible says, They shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Verse 39 is clear. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. The good of their children after them. Prophecy in Jeremiah 32. Skip back with me to Isaiah chapter 59, just one verse, the last verse, verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, notice this, comma, or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. That's your grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on and on, says the Lord. And then notice this little phrase, very interesting. From this time forth and forevermore. Let me ask you a question. You believe that you cannot lose your salvation. I doubt there's anyone in here today that believes you can lose your salvation. Why do we believe that? Well, very simple. We call it eternal life for a reason. Well, here in verse 21, it uses the language of eternal from this time forth and forevermore. What? God's promise that his words will be in the mouth of his people and in the mouth of their offspring and the mouth of their children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. The promise of God's salvation did not just extend to ethnic Jewish generations until the time of the new covenant. It says, from this time forth and forevermore. Seems to me to be very clear that children are always included in the promises of God. And what did we read last week in in Isaiah chapter 52 in verse 15? It says that he would sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told by them, they'll see that which they have not heard, they understand. What is this a prophecy of? the inclusion of Gentiles in the new covenant. God says, I'm going to sprinkle the nations. He's talking about sprinkling them with the Holy Spirit. So the sprinkling of nations, those who 
before had not seen or heard or understood the promises of God, now received the promises of God, and together with Isaiah 59, 21, those promises are included to their offspring from this time forth and forevermore. Very clear. Or if you go with me to Ezekiel chapter 37, we're just piling up the evidence here. Verse 24 My servant David shall be king over them. That's talking about Christ. Are we in the kingdom of Christ now? Well, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ has been inaugurated. He's ascended. He's ruling. The servant of David is king over us. This prophecy is being fulfilled. Verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them. That's now. And they shall have one shepherd. That's Jesus. They shall walk in my rules, be careful to obey my statutes. Okay, the law of God is still important. We agree with all of that. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. They and their children and their children's children will be there forever verse 26 I'll make a covenant of peace with them notice the language it will be an everlasting covenant with them I'll set them in the land multiply them I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore the language of multiplication is the language of the engrafting of Gentiles how do we know that verse 28 Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This is the kingdom of God in the world today with Christ the shepherd ruling over the hearts and lives of God's people as they obey the word of God, they obey the laws of God, and this is an everlasting covenant. As verse 25 says, that they and their children and their children's children will dwell forever in the presence of God under the headship and the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the land that is being spoken about there is fulfilled in the kingdom of God today. The land of Canaan was a figure of the, the permanency of God's promises when Christ came and how the whole world would become Christ's. We are in that land today. And there is a future time in which heaven will be ours. Heaven and earth will be ours. That's the ultimate promised land. But this is the one people of God, the one Israel of God, prophesying that these promises are for believers and for their children from this time forth and forevermore. So, what is interesting about all those prophecies that I read to you is that they are all prophecies regarding the new covenant. The new covenant. And they mention children over and over and over again. In fact, there's only so many prophecies of the new covenant in Scripture. And they all mention physical offspring that are included in the promises of God. So the conclusion should be that Children of believers, listen to this, are members of the new covenant. They are members of the new covenant. Now, if you've not baptized your child, does that mean that they're not members of the new covenant? I don't think so. 
You can't overturn the promises of God. Just by virtue of children being born to believing parents makes them members of the covenant. Now, they, are not, they might not be elect members of the covenant. We won't know until the day they give evidence of their faith. They're not automatically part of the kingdom of heaven, but they are part of the new covenant. So scripture prophecies always make a special mention of children, and that's the first line of evidence that the children of believing parents are included in the promises of God, the saving promises of God. Second line of evidence, and this is sort of a long heading. Scripture demonstrates that the children of believers, like Father Abraham, who believed, are included in the promises of God because they show the inclusion of children transcends the various administrations of the one covenant of grace. Now that's a mouthful, but let me just put it to you very simply. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the new covenant. The one principle that transcends all these various administrations of the one covenant of grace is that children are always included. So turn with me, for example, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. One of my favorite verses, verse 9. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Would we say amen to that this morning? And he's the faithful God who keeps covenant. We'd say amen to that. And steadfast love, amen, with those who love him and keep his commandments, yes, amen and amen. But notice what it says at the end, comma, to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. He keeps covenant to a thousand generations. This is not just talking about the fact that the gospel can't be silenced from one generation to the next. No, in the context of the prophecies we just read concerning the new covenant, this is talking about the physical offspring of the people of God who are true believers. God will remain faithful to his covenant to those children, to a thousand generations. That's figurative of for eternity. For eternity. What about the psalmist? Psalm 102. And I'm just giving you a sample here. Psalm 102, verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. The psalmist has confidence that the offspring of God's people will be established. They will dwell secure. There is a, a certain security that the children of God's servants will dwell secure. There should be a comfort in the hearts of every believing parent and the expectation in the heart of every believing parent, listen to this, that their children will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are times in which that doesn't happen. God is sovereign. He chooses who he chooses. But God has purposely designed his world and designed the covenant 
in such a way that it is the norm for the children of believing parents to be saved, not the aberrant sort of reality. There, there are things that God has set in place that if parents are not obedient, parents are an instrument that God uses to bring their children to a saving knowledge of Christ. So parents can be disobedient. Children all the time are told, you're too young, you're too young, you're too young to be a believer. You're too young to be baptized. You're too young. You don't understand. You don't understand. And is it any wonder that when they grow up, they conclude, this isn't for me? They've been excluded from every promise of God because they're too young to understand it. And then we wonder why they walk away from the church. They were never part of the church. They were never accepted. They were never embraced. They were never loved the way they should be loved. Psalm 90 verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations, the psalmist says. You've been our dwelling place in all generations. This is the testimony of Christian heritage throughout time. There are many other verses. Uh, For example, uh, Isaiah 65 and verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. I love that. A woman's labor is not in vain, especially a Christian mother's woman labor. Her labor is not in vain. She will not bear children for calamity, that is for destruction, for judgment. For her children will be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants after them. I mean, this is God making a declaration that he works through families. He works through covenant parents, through covenant families, when they are faithful to him. Listen to this from another psalm. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from, notice the language, everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There is a culpability with Christian parents because it says the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, to those who remember his commandments. So there's a responsibility on the part of Christian parents to uphold the law of God. There is a responsibility of Christian parents to point their children to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be repenters, And to be believers in Christ. And when parents do that, they have every expectation to believe their children will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. I know that sounds radical, but that is exactly what Scripture teaches. And perhaps the only reason that in our day it has become the norm for children of believing parents to reject the gospel has nothing to do with what college they go to. 
It has nothing to do with any number of other issues. Are their parents living godly before the Lord? Living faithful, consistent lifestyles of integrity. That's the issue. And I really think this comes to bear um, in a psalm that's quoted by Mary in Luke chapter 1, which is that psalm. Psalm 103 is quoted by Mary in Luke chapter 1. I preached on this, I think, during Christmas. Mary's Magnificat, her song of praise. My soul magnifies the Lord, verse 46. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Notice the language, all generations. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. She's quoting Psalm 103, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and notice this, to his offspring forever. Who are the offspring of Abraham? Romans 4 is clear, those who have the faith of Abraham. Galatians 3 is clear. Those who have faith are sons of Abraham. Mary says here that God has spoken to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The same promises God made to Abraham and to his descendants apply to those who are descendants of Abraham by faith in the new covenant. And what do those promises include? That God will save the children of believers. I love this because... There is no indication, think about this, there is no indication by Mary that generational succession ceases in the days of the new covenant. She is living in the days of the new covenant. John the Baptist would come, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mary was part of the last days of the Old Testament, the beginning days of the New Testament and the New Covenant, and what does she cry out when she is aware that the Christ child is in her womb? She says, this is the coming servant of the Lord. God has been faithful to his promises, and guess what? He's going to continue to be faithful from generation to generation. All of the offspring of Abraham, their descendants, true believers, can cling to these promises. The Messiah has come, but that doesn't mean the successive salvation of generations has ceased. She actually reaffirms that this is going to continue to be the case. She sings a a praise song to God to confirm it. So, The inclusion of children and the salvation promises of God transcends every covenant. There's only one covenant of grace. There's various administrations of this one covenant. And whether it's Mary in the New Testament or or whether it's Abraham in the Old Testament or Moses on Mount Sinai who said in Deuteronomy 7-9 that God is faithful to a thousand generations. It's all the one people of God and they're all saying the same thing. Because there's one God, there's one promise, there's one way of salvation, there's one Christ, and all of Scripture is pointing to this. 
There's a third line of evidence that God's salvation promises apply to the children of believing parents. And that is that the new covenant promises a reaffirmation, we could say, of a good relationship between believing parents and their children. A sort of reformation of sorts. If you're still in Luke, look with me in chapter 1 there, in verse 16. A prophecy, the angel said to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, that he, verse 16, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's John, right? He was just like Elijah. He dressed like him. He acted like him. And, and what is the principal thing that John the Baptist, this great reformer, this last great Old Testament prophet, what is the principal thing that he is going to do? Well, you say to yourself, he's going to preach the gospel, preach repentance, and baptize. Okay. But what does verse 17 say? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How does God cause a reformation? You want to know? Right here, Luke chapter 1. It is when parents are faithful in pointing their children to Christ. God works through believing parents to cause reformation and revival. And that's exactly what happened with John. He turned the hearts of the fathers to the children. There were apostate Israelites that marked the land. What did John do? John went to the parents and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what happened? Their children believed. Their children trusted in those promises. They, those fathers, engendered their children to them by comforting them with the promises of God's salvation in Christ. There was a culture in the homes of Israelite men as they were the heads of their homes that caused their children no longer to rebel. Rebellion marked the children of Israel. But now this reformation takes place. The fathers repent. And when the fathers repent and they establish the law of God and they point to the salvation promises of God, what happens? The children don't rebel against God. They don't rebel against the parents. They embrace the beliefs of the parents and they look to Christ for salvation. And I think it's so interesting that the very language the Bible uses to describe the reformation and revival that occurred in the days of John the Baptist is that he turned the hearts of the fathers to the children. This began with the heads of households, with families. It's stunning to me how clear, when you just take a step back, Scripture is about God's emphasis on the home and fathers and families when it comes to God's salvation. It's absolutely staggering. But there's a fourth line of evidence Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Again, just to remind you, we're talking about the fact that the children of believing parents are always included in the covenant promises of salvation. They are members of the new covenant. 
In Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews is describing how the new covenant is better than the old covenant. You know that, right? Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, just conduct a thought experiment with me for a moment. Over and over and over again in Hebrews, Christ is better than the angels. Christ's covenant is better. Christ is a better mediator. All the way through Hebrews, it speaks about how the new covenant is better. It's better. It's better. One of the better promises of the new covenant, this is obvious, is that now the gospel is going to reach the nations, right? In a way that it never did before. Sure, there were slaves and servants that were part of Israelite households from other nations that became believers. They were even circumcised and they were part of the people of God. They converted. But that was not on a mass scale. Matthew 28 baptized the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The mass inclusion of Gentiles is what makes the new covenant better. God is not simply working primarily in one ethnic group of people, the Jews. There are people from every tribe, tongue, and language who are coming to Christ. You have missionaries being sent from the continent of Africa to places in Europe where, where the Protestant Reformation occurred and they sent missionaries to Africa to people who had never heard the gospel. Now Africa is sending missionaries to Europe. What is this? Oh, it's a reminder to us we're in a better covenant, much better covenant. People are coming to Christ from all over the world. Not only that, it's a better covenant because think about this. Not only are the nations included in a way they weren't in the Old Covenant, but secondly, females now have applied to them the sign of baptism. In the Old Covenant, only males received the sign. In the New Covenant, the gospel goes to the nations. In the New Covenant, the sign of baptism is applied to females. It's a better covenant. It is all-embracing, right? It's more inclusive. So let me ask you a question. Are you going to tell me that the gospel has now reached the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation? The sign of the covenant is now applied to females, not just males, but we're going to leave out the children of believing parents in the new covenant. They don't really have a place. They are the main group of people. They are the precious ones in God's sight. If this is a better covenant, how can the children of believing parents not be included when the other nations are included? Pagans who convert. And yet God has designed his world and God has designed the covenant in such a way that the children of believing parents are viewed as special, they're viewed as privileged, they're viewed as blessed. We have the promises of God that his salvation will go from one generation to the next generation, from this time forth and forevermore to a thousand generations. But someone wants to say, yeah, we're in a better covenant, but the children of believers, no, they're not included like they were in the old covenant. What? How? 
How can you think that? It's not possible. Children of believers are members of the new covenant. Here it is. Jesus himself confirms the inclusion of children in the kingdom of the new covenant. Jesus himself includes the inclusion of children in the kingdom of the new covenant. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're going through the gospel of Mark. But in Matthew chapter 19, there's an episode. There's a similar one in Mark's gospel, but we'll, we'll save that for later. Matthew 19 Verse 13 says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. Now why they did this, I don't know. Maybe it's just part of human nature. Jesus was about the business of preaching the gospel and you have to reach the fathers. This is serious business. This isn't playtime. Maybe that was their thinking. So they're bringing children and they're saying, this is, getting, this is becoming a zoo. This is getting out of control. So they rebuke the people. But notice what Jesus says, verse 14. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, comma, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. These are children of Jews who naturally bring their children to Jesus because they know he comes from God and they know that their children will have a place with God and be received by God. And so Jesus says, let them come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus established the new covenant. And in the days of the new covenant, he embraced the children brought to him. Or this episode, recorded by Luke. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called, to, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I love that, because Jesus is affirming that the kingdom of God can be received by a child. It can be received like a child. A child can believe in Christ. A child can repent of sin. A child can demonstrate faith in Christ. It's always, and this is a little bit personal, forgive me for this, but it's always amazed me that people are enamored with the testimonies of people who lived rank immoral lives and they're always overwhelmed by the the sense of God's grace in that person's life. Maybe they were addicted to drugs. Maybe they ran around on their spouse. Maybe they were in prison, so on and so forth. And Christ miraculously saved them. And how amazing those testimonies are, and indeed they are. But how do you think that makes Children who grew up in covenant homes, who believed from a very early age before school, 
that Christ was their savior, that they were a sinner, that they needed Christ. How do you think that makes those Christians feel? I'll tell you, because this is my testimony, it makes them feel as if maybe they weren't actually saved when they were little. They didn't have enough knowledge and they didn't commit enough sin. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. The heart of a four-year-old is desperately depraved. And God can save a four-year-old just like he saves a 40-year-old who has lived in rebellion against God. Don't take away from the depth of God's grace and power to say that a child can't come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Jesus said, bring them to me. He He even said, bring the infants to me. We know that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. There's evidence that at least one person in church history was converted before they were born. Don't ask me to explain that. But also don't ask me to explain God's sovereignty and who he chooses. I don't understand that either. Why did he choose me? I don't know. I wouldn't have chose me if I knew the depth of my depravity. But that's God's grace. Perhaps one more, Matthew 21 Matthew 21, verse, I think it's 14. Yeah, I love this. The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and notice this, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. I mean, everywhere Jesus went, he seemed to have kids around I resonate with that I love kids kids are around and these kids this is amazing they are confessing the identity of Jesus they are crying out in the temple Hosanna to the son of David this made the religious leaders indignant And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, I have. And oh, by the way, have you never read Psalm 8, verse 2, that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Wow. Jesus writes off their indignation as if to say, have you never read your Bible to understand that from a mother's breast, The same mouth that eats at a mother's breast can sing praises to God and confess the name of God. This is not unnatural. This is natural. This is is the norm. This is not abnormal. This is normal. This is not the unexpected. This is the expected. This is the way God has designed the world and the way God principally has designed conversion. A baby who has sucked at the breasts of his or her nursing mother and has been given the covenant promises of God and has naturally believed those promises just as natural as drinking milk and breathing air, it becomes part of their very essence and part of their very being so that many covenant children can't point to a time and place of their conversion because there was never a time they didn't love the Lord and follow him. 
There was never a time in which they weren't aware of the fact that they were sinners in need of God's grace. I'll tell you this, there will not be a reformation in our society apart from fathers repenting and being the heads of their home and mothers submitting to those husbands and these parents raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, bringing their children to the Lord's house on the Lord's day and comforting their children with the promises of God. Parents do that and there will be a mass revival. You know why? Because that is the formula for reformation and revival. That is the pattern in scripture. That is the natural way conversions occur. Now, should we preach to the lost? Yes. Should we be a witness for Christ? Absolutely. Every day of our lives we ought to, but not to the detriment of neglecting our own children. Not to the detriment of neglecting our own children. Because how sad it will be on the day that we see Christ when he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Think of all these people you witnessed to that came to saving knowledge of Christ. But what about your children? What about your children? I don't want to hear that. But I know it's not up to me. I know that the promises of God's word are crystal clear that he has promised salvation to a thousand generations. I cling to those promises. I trust him. I pray and I leave the rest to God. Next week, we'll look at the other five lines of evidence that children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. Regardless of our view of infant baptism, children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is so precious, so true, so clear, so convicting, so compelling. The the force of it, the weight of it, the clarity of it. We thank you, dear Father. We thank you, blessed Holy Spirit, that you've helped us understand these truths. And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have died on the cross. Lord, that you have indwelled us with your spirit so we can understand your mind and your heart. Seal these truths to our hearts and all these parents, we pray in the blessed name of Christ. Amen.